go out uh, with boldness and frankness, uh, raise the financial support needs of all um, and, and uh, s- s- provide the resources needed. And Father, we thank you for this land in which we live and we ask for all those who govern us uh, locally and statewide and nationally that you would grant them wisdom, that you would bless them to be wise and good in governing, that they would govern justly and in accordance with your word, that good might be encouraged, that evil might be suppressed, that um, the church and believers might have the enjoyment of freedom uh, to preach and live the gospel and to live for you. And we uh, thank you for this Lord's Day. And we ask that you would profoundly work by your spirit in our hearts beyond all that we could ever hope or ask or imagine. For the glory of Christ we pray. Amen. Let me invite the uh, Mexico mission team to come forward and stand here. And Elder uh, Dr. Tuning is going to come and pray over us. The team leaves Saturday um, morning, and Lord willing, comes back the following Saturday, and we'll be able to, in weeks ahead, Lord willing, give reports. But we'll be going to uh, to Monterey and then on to a small, smaller city of about 600,000 Saltillo uh, near Monterey and working with the local church, encouraging the believers, uh, doing some construction projects that's, uh, that is needed for them and uh, help getting, we hope, a bigger picture of what God is doing in the world. So let's pray for the team. Thank you. sacrifice for us, and I pray that as they're asked to sacrifice them, to give of themselves in the ministry to others, that you'll help them to remember what you have done for them in that regard. For we will but be like you, leaving, going, giving up, and sacrificing. And Lord, I would pray that you would bless that, and I would pray that you would help those of us who are here to remember them. Pray for them every day. I pray that you will grant them traveling mercy, good health, and to accomplish that which you have set before them to do. Bless them. And bless their return. And help us to welcome them back. So we ask you to watch over them, to bless them, to keep them, to love them as you do. In 
know that you do. And we thank you for it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Good. Well, if you have a Bible with you this morning, let me invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. We'll be studying this morning the subject of maturity, Uh, picking up on Paul's language we'll be reading in just a moment. Uh, Purely hypothetical situation, you understand, that probably most parents can relate to, but when you have... uh, a two- or three-year-old transitioning from needing everything done for them to wanting to do everything on their own, by themselves, and for themselves. It can be a glorious and a uh, frustrating time. Glorious because they're moving towards what you hope they'll be. Self-reliant, capable of many skills and tasks without needing your help, and yet uh, at the same time, Uh, If you're in any way short-tempered, it can be quite a challenge to wait on somebody just figuring out how to do things and somebody who thinks they can do a lot more than they can. It's it's an interesting thing as we move in life from immaturity towards maturity. Well, there is a move in the Christian life in that same direction. We need to move from being babes in Christ to becoming more and more mature. I don't say arriving at maturity. I think those who are most mature would scratch their heads and say, (laughs) I've got a long way to go, which I think is one mark of maturity. It's that three-year-old who thinks, I'm all grown up, get out of my way. We want to think about what is Christian maturity or the maturing Christian uh, view of life, the Christian life. And to do that, we want to look at Philippians chapter 3. Let me invite you to hear God's word. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Amen. All men are like grass and all their glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, would you write this eternal truth upon our heart? Would you encourage and strengthen us for our walk with you? Help us to understand what you are doing with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, what... What does a maturing Christian think of himself and of the Christian life and of God? Those are the three things I want to explore with you from this text. In the first place, Paul says, what does Paul say about himself? How does he view himself? He says, I have a sense of 
to put words in his mouth, frustration, dissatisfaction, not a sense of my own perfection. You see it there in verses 12 and 13. Not, he says, that I have already arrived. He's frustrated. He's, he's acknowledging he's not what he should be. And he's thinking about himself. He's, he's not saying I'm frustrated with everybody else because they're not what they should be, though we all leap to that. That's easy. And he's not saying I'm frustrated with my circumstances, though many times perhaps we have good reason to be, or I'm even frustrated with God and what he's doing with me. Paul is saying, he's looking at himself and saying, I am not yet what I should be. But we sometimes think that if we believe the gospel, it wouldn't be like that. That if we really understood the goodness of the gospel and what Jesus had done for us, then we would be done dealing with us and our propensity to sin. That the gospel would somehow make us arrive in this life. But the truth is, when you believe the gospel, you begin to believe that you need the gospel more over time, not less. You'll see yourself as you really are more and more, like a blind man who's dead in a pit of mud. Jesus comes to you and he finds you and he breathes into you the breath of life and he gives you eyes to see and he takes you out of the pit and he sets you on solid ground. And in that dark night, he sets a light in the distance as dawn begins to shine. And you begin to walk with Jesus towards that light. What happens? You begin to shake big clumps of mud off. You begin to deal with the dirt. But you begin to see dirt you never imagined before. Because you now have eyes to see it. Because light is shining on you. You're not what you should be, and you sense that. It is, in some way, the profoundly immature Christian who thinks he's sort of arrived in this life. Now, in some cases, it's totally understandable. God, in his grace, with many people who come to faith in a, in a defining moment for them, find a new freedom and joy that they never imagined. And in God's providence, will at times experience a tremendous release and freedom from temptation and struggle with sinful patterns and habits. But, but over time, those sinful patterns and habits come back around. And you begin to deal with, how do I learn to fight temptation? What's really down in my heart? Because God really wants to change you more dramatically than you ever expected. But that can make you scratch your head and say, what's wrong with me? I, I thought I became a Christian. I thought I'd live well for Jesus now. And you discover that you're not. There's another reason, though, that we sometimes don't anticipate that it will be like this, and that's because we've, we've wrongly or poorly defined what our mud trouble is. We've redefined sin and the filth of it. We've made it out to be, for instance, uh, that which we know to be wrong and we willfully choose, which the Bible calls sins of the high hand, as it were. And no doubt, 
Those kinds of sins are real, but sin is more than just knowing what you shouldn't do and then doing it. Sin is also failing to do all the good that you should do and failing to be and to love and to think all that you should be and love and think. What happens when you begin to think this way, however, is that you begin to deal with sin and think, I'm really making progress and I'm doing well. So, for instance, a man might say to himself, I've quit committing adultery through the use of pornography, and therefore I'm no longer breaking the commandment about sin, sexual sin, anymore. Failing to see the sins of omission in his life, for instance, as a married man, failing to be interested in his wife and in pleasing her rather than seeing himself pleased. Or defending the sexual well-being of others by fighting for modesty or against pornography or fighting against the, the international sex trade or the American sex trade or even caring about those issues or being aware of and concerned for them or def- defending and praying for our future spouse if we're single or our marriage or our neighbor's marriages. There are, there are innumerable duties that are positive responsibilities of love in this area, and we have failed miserably in them. Now, granted, God does not call any of us to do all of our positive duties all the time and at the same moment. We couldn't. We're finite. But is it in our heart to do them? And do we realize even the ones we've intended to do or to think we haven't? Or take the man who has begun to take seriously the command not to steal. Jesus has changed his life, and he quits stealing pens and paper from his employer. Great. It's probably a great sign of your conversion, like the woman who, when asked by the elders, she was going to join a church, not here, and she was a maid. Well, what, why do you believe that you've become a Christian? She, she said, well, I've, I've quit sweeping the dust under the carpet. She was actually getting rid of it now. And it was a sign that Jesus had changed her life in her. But are we positively working as hard as we can for those who employ us and who have, as it were, contracted our time? Are we giving generously and self-sacrificially for others? Are we content with what God has provided for us or are we always longing for more? You see, that commandment about money really gets to the heart, and we are not what we should be. My point is, sin is not the bad stuff people do. It's much more than that. It's the good stuff we fail to do and to be and to love. And the Christian has begun, the maturing Christian perspective is, I am growing in my sense of imperfection and frustration with me. Are you tired of you yet? You're supposed to be. John Newton, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, gave us a hymn that we don't often sing, but it goes like this. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray, and he I trust has answered prayer. But It was not in such a way. 
as it, but it has been in such a way as almost drive me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and he let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more, with his own hand, he seemed to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. Are you frustrated? You're supposed to be to find your all in him. Dissatisfaction and frustration, not a sense of perfection, is the way we think of ourselves as Maturing Christians, Paul says. Now, how does he view the Christian life? What does that look like for him? It looks like taking responsibility for your spiritual progress by pressing on. Notice his language here. I press on to make it my own, verse 12. I don't consider I've made it my own, but forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on. On. He's saying, look, I take responsibility to live this life. And he views himself as a runner in a race. We might think of it as a marathon race. We might actually think of it as an ultra marathon race. You familiar with this? The marathoners run 26.2 miles. The best ones do it in a little over two hours. Have you heard of ultra marathon racing? It's where you run a marathon, and then you run another one, and another one, and another one, without a pause in between. You might run 10 marathons or more. The world record holder is a woman who ran 300 miles straight, took her two and a half days. It's like if we started now, we'd be done sometime on Tuesday, if we were world record holders. Most people can't go beyond about 250 miles because they fall asleep, just drop to sleep after about 48 hours without. Uh, The Christian life can feel like an ultra marathon. When is this going to end? When do I get to see Jesus and be like him and not like I am? And Paul says, that's what the Christian life is like. There's a runner running a race. There's a goal and there's a prize. Look, Look at the runner, he says. I take responsibility for me and what that looks like is this. I forget what lies behind so that I can look forward, which anybody who's ever run a race or ridden a bicycle knows you have to do. (laughs) You're in danger to yourself and others if you look behind you for any length of time. You'll run into somebody. You'll trip and fall. It's a disaster. You've got to keep your eyes on where you're going. So forgetting what lies behind, that means we've got to forget some of us our past sins, 
It's a hard thing to do. My past sins haunt me. Yours probably haunt you. Every now and then in a quiet moment, they come rushing back. And it can, it can ruin and kill your joy and your hope of moving forward. One man looked at his friend and said, you look depressed. What are you thinking about? And the man said, my future. And he, the guy said, what about your future? Uh, looks so hopeless. What makes it so hopeless? And the man said, my past. My past makes my future look hopeless because I think I'm going to be defined in my future by my past. And the gospel, if it means anything, it means you're not defined by your past. You're defined by Jesus' past record of perfect accomplishment. And you're defined by what God has said he will do with you to make you like Jesus. But it is so easy to lose all sense of forward progress and hope and joy when you live in your past. Or maybe for you, you're living in someone else's past as their past met yours and they hurt you. It's easy to dwell on and remember the many hurts that we have experienced long ago. And that memory can lock us into the past as we nurse those grievances. We've got to learn, as one pastor put it, we've got to learn to do with their past what we in the gospel are learning to do with our past, and that is to tie it to the cross and let it go. We need to perhaps pray that the blood of Christ would do for them who hurt us in our mind what it has done with our sins before God who said, I remember your sins no more. I don't hold them against you. I don't bring them up and throw them in your face and treat you in the way that you deserve because of them. But as far as the east is from the west, so far as I remove them from you. In our minds and hearts, we need to do that with others and let them go in the way that we have been released so that we can look ahead. And we need to look ahead towards a goal. Paul says, I strain forward to press on toward the goal. And what is the goal? He had mentioned it just previous in verses 10 and 11. He says, I want to know Christ and be made like him. I want to know Jesus. That's the goal of the Christian life, to know him and to be made like him. Is that your goal? Do you have a goal as a Christian? Our generation, certainly mine, is marked by spiritual apathy because we're apathetic about everything in life except for time off and luxury and entertaining ourselves. But we tend to be a little bit cynical, a little bit skeptical, not take too many things seriously, water off the back. I'm not going to engage myself. I'm not going to care too much. I don't want to be a freaky, radical Christian. I just want to be a pseudo-interested Christian. And so we don't have any goals. But you know what not having a goal does, right? Remember Alice in Wonderland? Remember when Alice comes to a junction in the road and she meets the Cheshire cat and she asks, will you tell me please which way I ought to go from here? And the cat responds to her, that depends a good deal on where you want to go. 
And Alice responds, I don't much care where. To which the cat replies, then it doesn't matter which way you go. Paul isn't like that. Paul isn't saying, I don't really care. I'm frustrated, but I'm disinterested. Paul says, I have a goal in mind. It is to know Christ and to be made like Christ. How do you reach that goal? How do you move forward towards something like that? Well, you got to go from here to there, but where's here? If you get here wrong, you can't go from here to there, right? Al Martin tells the story of a missionary friend who was on a preaching engagement to a place he'd never been in rural uh, Carolina, and he got hopelessly lost. He didn't really know where he was. He couldn't find any signs pointing him in the right direction. He didn't have a map to get where he needed to be. And after driving aimlessly around for a little while, he concluded that if he could find out where he was, he could probably get from there to where he was going. So he pulled up along the road next to a little boy who was standing there, and he asked him, saying, I'm lost. If I knew where I was, I think I could get to where I have to go. Can you tell me where I am? To which the little boy said, Mister, you're right here. Use nowhere else. (laughs) Not very helpful, is it? I mean, in one sense, that's great. Where's here? What I'm saying to you is, where's here for you if you're going to move forward from here? My guess, if you're at all like me, is you tend to think here is a lot further down the road than it really is. And because of that, you're not really dealing honestly with how little you know Jesus and not willing to say, I don't barely know you at all, Lord. And I'm so unlike you, it's ridiculous. If you won't go there, then everything else is just playing games. Showing up and impressing people you know and loved ones and pretending you're a good Christian who's making it like everybody else. you got to know where you are. That means you got to be honest about where you are. Most of us aren't anywhere near where we need to be. In fact, the beautiful thing about the Puritans, one of the things that they said was about sanctification in this life is that we all, might, we all make but very little progress in sanctification. If you and I are supposed to go from here to here to be like Jesus... Your lifetime will be spent going from here to here. (laughs) And God's going to make it all up at the end. But you are going to make progress, just very little progress. Let's not pretend we're further down that road than we ought to be. But the goal is to know Christ and to be made like him. And he says in the third place that there is a prize at the end of this marathon. Now that immediately may raise may raise red flags in your mind. To speak of prizes and rewards for living the Christian life sounds a bit mercenary. It sounds a bit childish. You know, kids run a race and they get a trophy. Great. But is that really how we ought to think of the Christian life? College students get straight A's so that dad will show them the money, right? There's always some kind of reward you're looking forward to. Is that how we ought to think of things? Well, let me suggest this, that it is the spiritually immature person who thinks of rewards the way that a child does. Do something well, 
you'll get a present. And they think of those rewards as things that are unrelated to what got them the reward. It's not as though we ought to say, that's all wrong, so there are no rewards. There's no prize. That would be unseemly to live for Jesus in hope of that. That would put God in my debt. And I will say to you, right, that's wrong as well. But it is a prize to receive what Jesus has already won for you as a gift of grace given to those who run the race. A prize which you will not get if you do not run the race. What am I talking about here? C.S. Lewis makes it a little bit more clear when he says this. There are different kinds of rewards. There is the reward which has no natural connection with the things you do to earn it and quite foreign to the desire that ought to accompany those things. For instance, he says, money is not the natural reward of love. That's why we call a man a mercenary if he marries a woman for the sake of her money. But marriage is the proper reward of a real lover. And he's not mercenary for desiring it. Or again, he says a general who fights well in order to get a peerage is a mercenary. But a general who fights for victory is not, victory being the proper reward of marriage, of of (laughs) battle. Marriage might be a battle, but I mix those metaphors. (laughs) Victory is the proper reward of battle, as marriage is the proper reward of love. Here's, Here's the money line. The proper rewards are not simply tacked on to the activity for which they are given, but they are the activity in its consummation. If that isn't clear, let me ask you this. What is the prize for wanting to know Jesus and to be made like Jesus? It is greater intimacy with Jesus and greater conformity to what Jesus is like. The prize is Jesus himself. The activity in consummation, a prize which he's already won for you and guaranteed to you but gives to those who want it, who run that race. It's genius, this prize. Goodness is its own reward, in a sense. And so he says, this is the way that we look at the Christian life. We're in a long-distance endurance contest, taking responsibility to move forward, not dwelling on the past, with a goal in mind to gain that prize. But what do you need to do that? You need resources outside of yourself to do that. You know those ultra-marathon runners who run these races? I was reading about this Navy SEAL who does these things. They just—they literally jog along. It's not a sprint by any stretch. They jog along for 48, 60 hours going. It's not like a marathon where you, never having run one, of course, I could say confidently, you pile up on food the night before, I assume, and maybe the morning of, I don't know. And you go out and run your 26 miles and sip a little water along the way, but you don't stop for a meal. These guys, 
This guy, he orders pizza ahead to meet him at an intersection. And he consumes a whole pizza while he's running for two and a half days straight. And I don't know how many times he does that, but I can only imagine how much he needs resources outside of himself to strengthen him for the race. You need resources to run this race. You need a view of God that places God's gospel into you as nourishment to cause the growth towards maturity. And Paul says it here in a couple of places, but just notice verse 12. I press on, he says, to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Why do you run? What encourages you to run? Not that you're going to chase Jesus down, stop him in his tracks, grab hold of him, and make him yours. But Paul says, because Jesus came to you. He chased you down. He found you. He grabbed you. He held you. He made you his so that you could make him yours. Do you see that? I press on to make it my own because he made me his own. That gospel of God's initiative and my response is the nourishment I need day in and day in, week in and week out, to encourage me. We need to, as it were, pull ourselves along by the rope of that gospel. Not that I'm working hard for him, but that he worked hard for me. Not that I'm running hard for him, but that he ran hard after me. Pull yourself along by that gospel, my friends. That is where your hope lies to persevere. Because all of us are going to trip and fall along the way. Of course. We're going to run into things, run into each other. The later it gets into the night, the further it goes, the weaker we feel. What do you need? You need somebody helping you along the way who's going to hold you and make sure you finish. And the glory of the gospel is that Jesus laid hold of you to guarantee that. We went out hiking or walking with the kids one day, and I can never remember where we were exactly. It was either on the sidewalk edge of a busy street, or it was on the rocky edge of a little cliff area. Whatever it was, it was dangerous enough that I grabbed hold of the the six- and the three-year-old's hands. Maybe they were five and two when it happened. And we're walking along, and they're grabbing my hands, making sure that, you know, everybody's going to be okay on this trip. And you know how it is with little kids, especially how sweet it is when the little one just kind of grabs hold of a finger or two. It's just, it's really endearing. And you know what I was doing while they were holding on to me? I wrapped my entire hand around that little hand and had him by the wrist. Now, my son could, he could let go, decide he didn't need me anymore. He could begin to sweat and have it slip. He could fall and have it suddenly jerked out. He could, he could do all kinds of things inside my hand, but my hand would never let go. Jesus says, I hold you in my hand, and no one can snatch you out of my hand. The Father is greater than me, and the Father holds you in his hand. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. When you fall, he's there to pick you up. When you lag behind, as it were, 
He runs back to hunt you down. When you stray off the path, he is so committed to you, he'll go get you like a lost sheep and bring you home because he is more interested in you finishing this race than you are interested in finishing this race because he loves you better than you love him because he's gracious and kind. So run that race, my friends. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we bless you. But the gospel means you are good and good to your people. Strengthen us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing in response that prayer, Come thou fount of every blessing, which closes with the line, O to grace how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let your grace now like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Receive now the Lord's benediction, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.